we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. It is an insider look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on hot topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Teledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wake that ass up in the morning. The Breakfast Club. Morning, everybody. It's DJ NV Charlemagne the Guy. We are The Breakfast Club. We got a special guest joining us this morning. We got Piers Morgan. Welcome. Thank you. How are you doing this morning? It's good to be here. I'm a little bit apprehensive because I messaged my sons to tell me the the big news I was coming on. And what did he say? And, well, my middle boy's a big fan of the show, and he said, Dad, Dad, you got to be careful. He said, Charlemagne's a bit of a menace. And I went, and then I didn't reply, and he then paused and then replied again, actually, so are you, so it should be fine. <laughs> you should have replied. You got to be friends. You should have replied back, do you know who your father is? <laughs> you, know, you know what I wanted to always ask you, though, in, in reference to that? I, I heard you say once you were hired to be controversial when you got the gig at ITV. Mm. So is my question is, is Piers Morgan actually controversial or is it just performative? Well, look, I don't wake up in the morning and start, you know, screaming at my family about the state of my, my Marmite on toast. Uh, but I am by nature very opinionated. Mm-hmm. I've encouraged my four kids who range from 12 to 30 to have opinions about everything. I think if you don't have opinions, you have a lazy mind. Uh, I always believe the things I say at the time I say them. 
I'm happy to change my view. If somebody gives me a compelling argument for why I'm wrong, I have no problem saying, you know mm. what, you have a point. I'm changing my, my perspective. Um, but yeah, look, am I controversial? I often take issue with that because I don't actually think my views are that controversial. Mm -hmm. I actually think that they're controversial if you only judge my opinions by what Twitter now X says. Mm -hmm. But then 80% of the public are not on Twitter X. 80% mm -hmm. um, of the public aren't on social media at all. And when I walk around the streets, whether it's in New York or LA or it's London or wherever it may be, Sydney, Australia, I get a very different reaction to the one that I get on on the social media platforms where people go, yeah, everything you say is outrageous. And well, actually, it's not. I, I think I have reasonably popular views, which a lot of people subscribe to. I don't. I think a bit like you. I don't know your politics, but I think a bit like you. I don't identify as as left or right. Mm -hmm. um, I think I like to go after everybody, examine their opinions, challenge them. And I think that's the way you should be if you're in our game. So I don't like to be identified into a box about anything. Or, um, so that I look, am I controversial? I say things forcefully. Mm -hmm. I express my opinions forcefully. I don't think that's controversial. Well, for, think, people, mm. for, for people that don't know who Piers Morgan is and how you got into this. Is there anybody listening that doesn't know me? <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, don't know how you got into this entertainment world. Mm. Break down how you got into this world, how you started off at The Sun, and, and, and what yeah. made you follow this path well i was uh from the very early age like six or seven my mom remembers me reading newspapers avidly and in, in britain the national newspaper culture is very big mm -hmm. we have about 13 national newspapers very unusual uh, obviously we're a very small island by comparison to the united states mm -hmm. but it means that the national papers have a very large influence over the Correct. thinking of the people and the, and we have a wide range of papers Left wing, right wing, centrist, there's, there's something for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I used to read the papers avidly when I was six or seven and, and read out stories to it. So I had this thing in my blood. I had a few journalists in the family. I just wanted to be a journalist. And I ended up going to journalism college, ended up going on local newspapers, doing all the flower shows, the weddings, the, you know, all the, the boring stuff, but mm -hmm. important because it teaches you the craft of reporting. Right. Uh, and then I got onto The Sun, which was at the time the biggest selling tabloid newspaper in Britain, in fact, I think it was in the world at mm -hmm. the time. And I very quickly became the show business editor doing a column called Bizarre, which basically did what it said on the tin. It covered the bizarre world of entertainment. It was a great gig. It was a time when newspapers sold huge amounts. Yep. The Sun sold over 4 million copies a day and was read by wow. about 11 to 12 million. So a huge audience. And my job was to go around the world in very nice conditions and interview the world's most famous people and to cover what they got up to. And I I really enjoyed it. Did it for five years. And then Rupert Murdoch, who owned The Sun, um, he uh, flew me to a beach in Miami. I walked along the beach with him for three hours. I had no idea what I was doing there. I was 27 years old. And the consequence of that long walk along the beach was he made me editor of the News of the World, which was his biggest selling newspaper in the world. It was biggest thing is probably it's closed now and um and i took on this extraordinary job at a ridiculously young age and what year was that uh it was 1994. oh so way okay. before fox news yeah 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 so yeah. so my my whole trajectory uh from my youth onwards was to become a national newspaper journalist and i became an editor of the biggest selling papers in the country mm -hmm. at a very i was the youngest editor ever of a of a paper there 
I then moved to uh, the Daily Mirror, which was a slightly left of center newspaper. Mm -hmm. News of the World was slightly right of center. So going back to what I said earlier, I can, you know, I never parked myself into either box really politically. And I did that for nearly 10 years, competing against Rupert Murdoch. So I had the benefit of working for a man I consider to be a, a genius mm -hmm. when it comes to the media, and then competing against him. And I have to say, it was more fun competing against him. Uh, because we were the underdogs, we had less money, less staff, less resource. I found that a brilliant challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got fired. It was a huge scandal uh, in the UK. Um, the Iraq war was raging. Mm -hmm. I had taken the paper's position as anti the war um, very aggressively. Tony Blair was the uh, prime minister in the UK. And we were the Labour supporting newspaper historically, but I went against him on the war. And I think I've been vindicated by subsequent events. I felt it was an illegal conflict. What complicated it more for me was my own brother, who was an army officer in the Royal Regiment of Wales, actually went on the front line in Basra in Iraq at the same time that I was opposing the war. So for my family, it was a very complex situation, mm -hmm. uh, as you can imagine. But I got fired uh, because we got some pictures. You may remember the Abu Ghraib pictures, which came mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. American troops abusing Iraqi civilians, they were horrific, and we were past some pictures that were not as bad, but they were pretty awful. Mm -hmm. And we published them, and it was said they were fake. They were I've, fake yeah. I've yeah. never, I've never been fully, I think, confident of exactly what they were. The story that they depicted was never denied and is accepted as being true. Mm -hmm. It was British troops abusing Iraqi civilians, um, and they it, retracted it too, right? They the, the paper fired me and then said sorry, but I didn't say sorry, and I haven't retracted it. And I, the more I've gleaned over the next 20 years, 20 years, incredible, um, since it happened, um, I've been told by many people in the army that actually they might well have depicted, not just depicted a genuine incident, mm. but that the pictures themselves may have not have been what, what people were led to believe. So um, I was thrown into the wilderness. My dream was over of being a newspaper journalist. I was 38. Mm -hmm. I became the youngest editor to be appointed and the youngest to be fired. <laughs> it was a nice little win-win mm -hmm. at both ends of that career. And then I had lunch with a guy called Simon Cowell, mm -hmm. wow. who'd been an old friend of mine. Back when no one knew who he was, he right. was a record plugger. He used to plug some terrible records, and I used to help him promote them. Some record plugger is like a record promoter here in, in the States. Record promoter, okay, right? Okay. And he, you know, he was an A&R guy, basically, for a record company. Mm -hmm. His job was to get publicity and... Uh, uh, stuff behind the records of the company, mm -hmm. and I would help him do that with my column. So we'd established a little relationship, which right. worked for me. He'd give me interviews with his guys and so on. And Simon Cowell took me for lunch, and he went, what are you going to do? I said, I have absolutely no idea. We were at the Belvedere in Kensington, London. Lovely restaurant. He went, well, you see, I, he said, look, I'm, I'm thinking about bringing back a talent show. And I went, okay. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you remember the old gong show in America? Mm -hmm. He said, there's nothing like it on TV anymore. There's Idol, which is a singing show, and he was the biggest TV star in the world at the time on Idol. Um, he said, but there's nothing that's like all-round entertainment. Any talent will do. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do this. So long story short, he mapped out on a little handkerchief in the restaurant, he mapped out, what you'd have, you'd have like a mother hen judge, you'd have a controversial judge, you'd have a straight down the middle judge, you'd have a good host, and blah, blah, and they could do any talent. And um, we then, interesting story behind it, because we then did a pilot for that, 
which was uh, called Paul O'Grady's Got Talent. You probably don't know who he was. He died sadly uh, recently, but he was a huge TV star in the UK, very popular. And the pilot was brilliant, and ITV, the network, loved it. This was going to be my big comeback. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled. Primetime television, it's amazing, mm-hmm. as a talent show judge. And then Paul O'Grady fell out with ITV, hurled abuse at them, defected to the rivals, and the show got, got put on the back burner. And I was completely disconsolate, thinking, well, what, what am I going to do now? And then I'll never forget it. I got a, tax, a text from Cowell about two months later, maybe even earlier, mm-hmm. saying, I've sold the rights to Got Talent to NBC in America. And they want to repackage it as America's Got Talent. And I can't be on it because of Idol. And I was trying to think, who do I know who's as annoying, egotistical, <laughs> uh, objectionable, and judgmental as me? And your name has immediately sprung to mind. <laughs> uh, and I was flown to, it was a crazy period of my life. I was flown to LA. Simon picked me up in his Bentley at the airport. The next day, I met with two NBC executives who'd never heard of me. Mm-hmm. I had to sell myself. He said, just bullshit them like you normally would, which I did. Uh, obviously quite successfully because the next thing is <laughs> two weeks later I'm on the Paramount movie lot mm-hmm. with the famous Melrose Gates in LA in a trailer next to David Hasselhoff with Regis Philbin down the down the alley uh, and I'm in this show America's Got Talent now he said to me Cal don't get too excited because most shows open and bomb right so you got a kind of 3 in 30 chance alright that's it the rest just get tanked so just enjoy it, have fun. And he said, and be right with your judgments 80% of the time. If you do that, it can be as mean as you want. But if you're wrong and the public at home don't agree with you, the mean act doesn't play. Yeah, you're, just, you can, you're just a curmudgeon at that right. point. But right. if, you, if you're tough but right and the audience agrees with you, the act will, will fly. I love you, yep. And uh, we, we recorded all the audition shows. And the first night it went on air, I was in the UK, he was in LA. And I, I, he rang me, and he, and he did the full cowl on me. He said, Piers, it's Simon. Uh, it's, it's not good news. And yeah. I went, oh, no. He said, it's really, it's bad news, really bad news. I went, oh, how bad? He went, it's, well, for me personally, he said, it's as bad as it could possibly be. I mm. went, wow, how <laughs> bad were the ratings? I was thinking, this is, okay, I'm, I'm done. He went, yeah, unfortunately, it's number one in the ratings which means you just became a massive star in America. And I feel like Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> and, uh, and that was that. And that was the start of my TV world. So I, I did America's Got Talent for six years. Then I did Celebrity Apprentice with a certain Donald Trump as host. I remember. Uh, it was the first season of the celebrity version. I won it. Uh, did he really smell? People say he has a smell. Does he really smell? No, no. He was always immaculate. And actually, I always, yeah, he smelled fine. Okay. Um, he was, he was, I tell you what, it was interesting. Someone asked me the other day about this. He was much more empathetic in the boardrooms for hours on end really? than he's ever been as president. It was interesting to watch. He, he stopped that empathy vow, which I saw a lot of in The Apprentice. I don't know why it would help him. It's almost like he feels you have to be this big, tough guy. Mm-hmm. I, if I were advising him, I'd say, if you do win again, be more bring empathetic. a bit of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. People, it goes a long way. Um, but I ended up winning that, uh, went back on town. And then as a result of all this, Really what I wanted to do was do a big interview show. And then Larry King uh, stepped down from CNN, the greatest bit of interview real estate in world television. At the and time, my, absolutely. Yeah, and my late great uh, manager, John Ferreter, somehow got me the gig. Mm. And we celebrated at the Beverly Wilshire Cut restaurant with a bottle of 1961 Chateau Latour. Ooh. I think I paid about $10,000 for it. Nice. And we drank it 
very slow sip by very slow sip. <laughs> and I signed the contract, which was brought to me by the front desk from, uh, from CNN at about midnight. And that was one of the great wow. moments of my life and my manager's life. And that took the whole thing full circle. Did nearly four years at CNN, interviewing amazing array of people. Um, and then I, I came back to the UK, did the breakfast show. Just to be clear, we had the most dangerous morning show in the world, right? <laughs> Not you guys. You guys, you're kind of dangerous. A little dangerous. Just a little we bit. were properly dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as you may may recall, uh, the Meghan and Harry interview aired yep. on Oprah Winfrey. I took a view. I didn't believe a word they were saying about the more serious allegations, which I think has stood the test of time pretty well, actually, um, given no evidence has ever emerged. And I got fired uh, again, or put in the position where either I should apologize or I, I lost my job. Now, at the time, we were killing it in the ratings. We had just beaten the BBC for the first time in our show's history. Mm -hmm. We had trebled the ratings in five years. We were on fire. We were dangerous, anarchic. Like anything happened. I never used to look at scripts. It was just like off we went every day. Right. And so it was a real shame. You know, I didn't want to leave it, uh, but I left it. And then I went back to work for my old boss, Rupert Murdoch. He was launching a new network in the UK, Talk TV. And my show, Piers Morgan Uncensored, which was what I needed to be mm -hmm. uh, without people making me apologize to people I thought were lying uh, for saying I don't believe them. Um, and that's where I've, I've ended up. And I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've been on air it'll be two years in April. Um, I think we found ourselves a voice of being genuinely uncensored, platforming mm -hmm. everybody, challenging everybody. I love it. It airs in three continents, Australia, the US on Fox Nation here and talk TV in the UK. And that leads me to my career high, which is appearing on your show. <laughs> you, 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 you had me on Uncensored too, I appreciate that. Uh, a few conversations, a few questions came out of everything you just said. Number one, did Rupert Murdoch ever try to hire you at Fox News? Uh, no, it, it was always about Fox Nation. Fox Nation is the kind of uh, subscription platform that Fox has, which runs side by side with Fox News. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of Fox News stuff, like I'm doing the five this week for two days. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll go on Sean Hannity's show and so But the, the interesting thing for me is, whatever people think of Fox News, I'm never put under any pressure to toe any line, right. to have any view about an issue, nothing. Nobody even talks to me. I'm allowed to just be me and have my opinions. And I have strong opinions about a lot of cultural issues in America, which do not sit well with Fox viewers, for example, about guns and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody ever tries to censor me when I appear on Fox News, which is interesting because I would say it's more difficult now to have that kind of freedom at someone like CNN where I used to work mm -hmm. um, because they're so, for example, hostile towards Donald Trump. If you try to go on there and say something positive about him, that that would probably, someone wouldn't mm -hmm. like it. You know? mm -hmm. um, I don't get any of that at, at Fox. And I find that a really just an interesting observation for me personally that I'm allowed to just be me and do my thing. Well, of course, they they're going to let you. They're going to let you be pro-Trump on Fox, of course. No, no, but I can be critical of Trump too. Is my okay, point. Gotcha, Whereas gotcha. I think it would be harder to be pro-Trump on CNN and get right. invited back too many times. I think I think it's changed now. I think it has done a bit. Yeah. It's good. They, they need to, because CNN should really be in the middle. Otherwise, where do American viewers go to for genuinely impartial news coverage? You've got MSNBC very you know to the left you've got a fox obviously very conservative you need to have cnn to be impartial i felt they lost their minds over trump uh, i mean the, the reality is all of them should be 
impartial. That would be the beauty, yeah. right? It would be beautiful if all of them were objective. I actually have no problem in a country like America, a bit like the UK, a bit like with the newspapers, when we had left-wing papers, right-wing papers. I used to read them all. I still do. Mm -hmm. I still, when I'm back in England, I get four same. or five papers. I read them all. And I get a flavor for what everyone's thinking. I don't have a problem with left-wing networks or, or conservative networks, but you've got to have some place that Americans can go to for genuinely impartial coverage. Um, and I think in the in the UK, we're, we're quite blessed, really. We have the BBC, we have Sky News, we have other networks, which are very, in my estimation, comparative to here, very impartial. And I, I like that. You know now, who used to be that for America? John Stewart in The Daily Show. Yeah, well, I miss him. I felt he gave up that show, unfortunately, too early. Mm -hmm. I think John Stewart would have been a really important voice through the whole Trump, Trump era. era. Yeah. You know, you needed people, strong personalities through that era to put things in perspective. I don't think he would have gone the whole way in constant Trump bashing. Because, of course, the, I've known Trump a long time since I did his show. The thing about the Trump bashing is it only helps him anyway, right? I mean, I had a great conversation with Chris Rock when Trump won in 2016. And I went to the New York Knicks with my eldest son, Spencer, who was over with me. And we were just sitting in one of the VIP areas, and Chris Rock was at the next table on his own. So we got talking. I said, what do you make of what's just happened? The election happened the day before, and New York was like a mortuary. You know, you mm -hmm. walked around, it was like this terrible silence everywhere. Mm -hmm. like, How did this happen? And I'd been predicting Trump was going to win because I'd been doing crime documentaries down in rural America, down in Alabama, down in Florida, rural Florida, rural Texas. I could feel it. I could feel the Trump train steaming, and no one on the coast seemed to have picked up on this, and the media hadn't picked up on it. They were just like, oh, Hillary's going to slaughter him. She's the most qualified candidate ever and i thought you you don't understand middle america and what's happening here and i think Quite the rural south and i think the same thing is happening again now by the way which is why the, the iowa result has shocked everyone on the coast um but you know i remember talking to chris rock and he said you know two, several things he said one fame do not underestimate the power of a television fame in america he said now he said and secondly he said if someone's killed nine or eight people, I think he said, don't go around saying he's killed nine. I thought that was such an astute thing to say. Mm -hmm. Don't, as we would say in England, don't over-egg the souffle, right? Don't exaggerate how bad Trump is to score your point or get some clicks on social media or whatever. Just give it straight. Examine what he's saying. Examine what he's doing. Often what he says and what he does are two different things, right? But don't over-exaggerate. Don't over-demonize him, he said. You know, don't go around calling him the new Hitler when we know Hitler killed 12 million people. So I thought that was a really smart take then. And I think it's a really good bit of advice now for the Democrats, which is if you continue to over demonize Trump, all these legal cases against him and so on, it just allows him to play the martyr, the victim. It fuels his popularity. Mm -hmm. Even Republicans who don't like Trump are rallying behind him because they think he's part of a Democrat-led liberal media witch hunt and if you allow him to play that card he's going to win so if you're a democrat this is a bad strategy but you have to hold people accountable though nobody's above the law no question yeah absolutely but you have to hold both sides accountable right and trump needs to be held accountable but you cannot deny that what's happened in iowa i thought was fascinating he won across the board mm -hmm. right yeah. i know but if it had been if it had been a democrat with those numbers trust me all the people saying, yeah, would have said very different things. Well, so I was watching Morning Joe yesterday, and he said 
Otherwise, he had a different perspective, which I didn't think about. He was like 50 percent of Republicans also voted against Trump, which, does it, which makes it it doesn't make it a slam dunk for him no, in the general but I, election. Look, I love Morning Joe. And I think Joe Scarborough is brilliant, by the way, one of my favorite people to watch on television over here. But would he have said the same thing if Joe Biden got those numbers? Right? Mm, and the truth right, is, yeah. no, because, it, it, of course, they were they were tremendous numbers. Well, we'll never know because the Democrats don't want to do a primary. Right. Which is also not democracy. But the truth is, Trump, you know, Trump winning by 30, 30 points over his nearest rival. Mm -hmm. Trump having the biggest win of any Republican in an Iowa caucus ever. Right? The, you, these are undeniable numbers. And if, mm -hmm. if Democrats want to look at these numbers and pretend they're not what they are, they are once again deluding themselves about Trump. And they will be sleepwalking, which sadly, and I know you've been quite critical of, of Joe Biden about his just general lack of energy, mm -hmm. general lack of fire. If you look at Trump, you know, he's only three years younger than Biden. He looks 20 years younger than Biden. Mm -hmm. you know, this is, remember, Trump's never had a drink, never had a cigarette, never had a drug. I've had long conversations with him about his brother who, was, who died of alcoholism in his 40s and made him swear off all that stuff, right? He has an unusual health for a guy who doesn't look like an athlete. He's pretty fit and he's got a lot of energy. He can get up there. He can rally crowds. He's a very, very effective performer as a politician, regardless of what you think of his mm -hmm. policies. And I also think he's shown qualities which many Americans admire, not least resilience. This comeback he's making, nobody thought he could do this. After the stolen election bullshit, after the January 6th riots, all that stuff, after the 91 criminal charges, did anyone really think we'd be in a position where Trump had a landslide win mm -hmm. in Iowa? and is now in most polls I'm looking at likely to beat Biden if he does end up as candidate. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible comeback. Are you all about the NBA action? You've got to try Pick 6, the newest fantasy app from DraftKings, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can earn a 100% instant deposit matchup to $100 in Pick 6 credits when you deposit $5 or more. Getting started is simple. Just download the DraftKings Pick 6 app and sign up with code BREAKFAST. Pick at least two players and choose if they'll have more or less of a stat. Like, will they score more or less than 30 points? Or have more or less than eight assists? Lock them in and compete against others for a shot at huge cash prizes. Download the DraftKings Pick 6 app now and get started with Code Breakfast. New customers can earn a 100% instant deposit matchup to $100 in Pick 6 credits when you deposit $5 or more. Only on DraftKings Pick 6 with Code Breakfast. The crown is yours. One offer per new customer. Minimum $5 deposit to receive a match of up to $100 in Pick 6 credits. Non-withdrawable and valid for Pick 6 use only. Expire after 180 days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 18 plus in most eligible states. Age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. Pick 6 not available in all states. For up-to-date list of states, visit dkng.co slash pick 6 states. Void where prohibited. See terms at pick6.draftkings.com slash promos. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> 
I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Like Pastor Troy doing the ad-libs for one of Justin Timberlake's biggest hits. Whenever you listen to Cry Me a River, man, I'm all through them ad-libs on that song. It's that one, 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 Cry Me a River, ah. Y'all hear this, man? listen to it, man. And what if I told you Jazzy Faye and CeeLo have an unreleased album just sitting in the vault waiting? Now, you and CeeLo had a group for a minute, man. Yeah, we had a whole album in the can. We got a, we have a whole album. Now I have partnered with iHeart Podcast to bring you one of the hottest podcasts in the game, telling you some of the most unheard stories in the music industry. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, whatever you think well, of it. well, it's something we say all the time, right? We know that America systemically, structurally, is a racist country. And I think things like that prove it. And I wanted to ask you about in Trump 2016, after you win, I can understand the case for optimism, right? Mm. Nobody wants to see this country fall. But mm. it's 2024 now. Based on everything we've seen Trump do, all of the things you mm. just, you know, said, the attempted coup of the country, the 91 criminal charges, mm. you still think he should be president? Well, it's not a question of whether I think he should be. It's whether I think he might be. Okay. I don't, as a non-American citizen, it's not for me to say whether Trump should be your president. It's mm -hmm. down to Americans, right? What I do know is, you remember that last time, after four years of Trump, nearly 10 million more Americans voted for him second time round than first. Mm -hmm. It was the biggest vote for both sides. Now, Biden got a huge vote, the biggest ever. But don't forget, Trump got 10 million more than first time, right? So he is hugely popular with a constituent of American people, mm -hmm. with many tens of millions of American people. And the enthusiasm levels for him with his own base are massively higher than they are for Joe Biden. Oh, I agree. Right? I think the Democrats, if they insist on allowing Biden to progress as their nominee, are going to hand Trump the best chance he has of being reelected. They would say the opposite. They would say, well, we beat him last time. Joe beat him. Joe Biden beat him last time because it was the anti-Trump vote. Not just the anti-Trump vote. It was like some of the most tragic situations had happened. I mean, you had COVID, you had right. George Floyd, people were in the streets protesting. Yes. Like it was a, a a series of unfortunate circumstances, I think that helped uh, Joe Biden. Listen, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I think Trump would have won that last election very comfortably. Well, what do you think about people now who are very critical of Joe Biden, uh, which is probably gonna influence people not to vote for Joe Biden, mm. which is pretty much uh, as far as all the Democrats have. So it's like even with Charlemagne, he, they're very critical of him talking bad about Joe Biden and saying yeah, that you're right. it, might pull, it might push people to sit on the couch instead of go out and vote. Well, I know you endorsed them both last time, right? Biden and, and yeah. Kamala Harris. I actually endorsed Harris. Right. Most, I, didn't, I couldn't endorse Biden. I endorsed Harris. So what do you think Harris. about right. a lot of people that, that are very critical of Joe Biden, but kind of that's, that's all we have? Uh, I think it's a bad state of affairs for the Democrats and it's sleepwalking into potential defeat. Mm -hmm. potentially to Donald Trump. I think Trump is 95% certain to be the Republican nominee. And I think if you have a young, dynamic candidate on the Democrat side, then you can draw a, a real difference now between you and Trump. If you go for someone like Gavin Newsom, like the governor of California, all right, he's not universally beloved for a lot of his policy stuff. But I watched him go on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News for the hour. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. The fact that he did it mm -hmm. shows he's got balls, right? Um, the fact that they had a pretty courteous debate it was very interesting. He's slick. He's a good operator. He's been governor of one of the biggest states in the country. You know, I, you look at that and you think, why wouldn't you want to parachute someone like him in to take on Trump with more energy, with more dynamism, with more, you know, more of maybe, a, you know, choose, choose a path for the country you think will resonate right. with enough people to beat Trump. I, I just think Biden, sadly, I've not, I don't know him personally. I had an amazing conversation with him once on the phone when his son Bo died because Bo used to be on my CNN show a lot. And I had no doubt from that conversation. He just rang me to thank me for a column I'd written about his son. And we had a very uh, moving conversation about loss and grief and all that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And there's no doubt he has incredible empathy, mm -hmm. Joe Biden. But if you want to know the problem with Joe Biden, go back and look at uh, YouTube clips of him as a senator when he was in his 40s. Mm -hmm. There's one in particular where he's railing against apartheid South Africa. Mm -hmm. it is, it, you're watching a firebrand guy absolute firebrand you'd vote for that guy every time he would get the vote out against trump in a heartbeat he's not that guy anymore 
You know, because he's not, 80, and whatever he is. It's old. not because he's 81, actually. I've met some incredible, like Rupert Murdoch's in his 90s. He still has vim and vigor and is sharp as a tack. Dame Joan Collins at the Emmys is a very good friend of mine, right? Mm -hmm. Look how fantastic she looks. She's 90, mm -hmm. right? She's nine years older than Biden, but has 10 times the energy. It's not about his age. Trump's 70 78. It's not about him being 81. Mick Jagger. I met Mick Jagger at the cricket. And in, you big cricket fans, you guys? Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I met Mick Jagger at a big England cricket match in, uh, in the summer, and he just turned 80. And I went, you know, look at you compare it to Joe Biden. We were laughing. I said, you should be president of the United States if you're American, because it's not about age. Jagger's only a few months younger than Biden. It's about, unfortunately, Energy, it's about senility. It's about mm -hmm. probably a slow dementia. It's about his inability to stay on two feet, mm -hmm. his constant vocal gaffes, and so on and so on. It's sad. I don't think anyone feels good about watching Joe Biden kind of physically disintegrating in front of our eyes. But he's still nine months away from a general election and then expects us to think he can lead this amazing, huge superpower for another four years. He can't. And you can't go to Kamala Harris. She's been a total disaster. So the Democrats, if they're not... I think she scares people more than... than I think if he had... And, you know, just that's just where racism and sexism comes into play. Mm -hmm. I think if he has a white male vice president, I think I don't think people are as afraid to vote for Biden. You know what? I honestly don't think it has anything to do with Kamala's uh, race or gender. I think it's because she's turned out to be useless. And sometimes you just have to call what you see. I don't. I mean, most vice presidents are useless, though. Well, some of them are, and yeah, that's I mean, their job. In <laughs> some of them, it's, it's not a, it's not a great job. You don't really have yeah. any power. You just take all the flag. She's been especially ineffective. Let's put it like that, right? I met her actually once. I thought she was very charming to me, and I was expecting more. She's obviously a bright woman. She's just been incredibly ineffective for him. I mean, her poll numbers are just as bad as his. So the pair of them. I think she's been ineffective because of to go back to the fact her race. And her gender, I think that allows her to say and do things mm. that other VPs probably couldn't, or even somebody like mm. Joe couldn't, but she's choosing not to. I agree. And I don't think she's done nearly enough for your community, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of promise came in with Kamala Harris. Where's the delivery? Mm -hmm. I don't see it. So I don't think she's been effective at all. The interesting thing about Gavin Newsom, if he was to become the nominee, it solves the problem of how do you fire Kamala Harris if you're a Democrat leader because you, they both come from California, she wouldn't be allowed to be his VP anyway. Mm. There's a rule apparently in the Constitution about that, uh, all the election rules. So automatically you solve two problems at once. You get rid of this decaying mm. old guy as your nominee with a guy half his age and twice the energy, and you also don't have to have Kamala as VP anymore, and he doesn't have to be seen to be firing her. So it's an interesting little twist on that. What, he, what put you in so much into American politics, right? Because I love it. I don't think there's anything like American. I don't. Politics. I don't think any, like what like what made you want to jump into American politics and to learn American politics? Because it's, it's it's a lot and it's, it's a lot of bullshit too. When I came to CNN, I came in uh, started in uh, January 2011, and of course we had the election in uh, 2012, and uh, I just was covering this night after night after night. You got to understand the difference between the American process and ours in Britain. It, the election in Britain, the general election, it lasts about six weeks. That's it. Your prime minister calls an election, and within six weeks, it's all over. Mm -hmm. Right here, it, it basically starts the moment one's ended, yes. and then it Four really years, starts right. at the start of election year for eleven or ten months. Right? I find the whole process a apart from anything else, you really get to understand what these candidates are about. Mm -hmm. There's no escape. 
in Britain, you could actually become a leader of a country like Britain without the public really knowing that much about you because there's not enough time to scrutinize them properly. Plus, the American media, when it really gets together and goes after people, is a formidable scrutinizing beast. So I, I, love, I, I love America. It, it's, for me, it's been absolutely the land of opportunity. I've had amazing uh, successes here and a few lows. And I, I love the fact that Americans, whether you're, you know, I've been all around America. Doing America's Got Talent, you went to almost every major city quite regularly. And I just love the difference between the, the states, the cities. But I love the concerted view that America is still the place. If you want to come and be someone, America is still the number one place to make a success of yourself. You know, when I was doing well on TV here, I was very conscious so few British people have done that. Really, I mean, just a handful um, to hold down a nightly talk show like Larry King's old job on CNN for nearly four years was pretty much unprecedented. So I love it. Don't David Frost back in the seventies? He'd have to go back to. Um, so I love, I love the, the, everything about America, and the can-do mentality, and the competition that you had because you got three hundred and thirty, forty million people competing for, you know, these prize jobs and the, the work ethic. You know, you have like three weeks vacation a year maximum. In most European countries, it's at least double that, right? So you have less vacation time. You work harder. You're more competitive. You're more successful as a nation than anyone in history. Um, I love all that. That plays to all my – I like to think I have a strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. I'm very competitive. I like to win in the biggest possible marketplace. That's America. Um, and I love my own country too, of course. I love that about America. And you lose that at your peril, you know, and it's this whole issue about democracy in America, incredibly important to preserve the safeguards of your democratic process. When I watched that January That's 6th... That's why you right, can't vote Trump back in. Well, it's interesting. It'd be interesting. The one thing I thought was interesting was at the end of his acceptance speech at Iowa, he suddenly sounded very conciliatory and inclusive mm -hmm. for the first time. And I go back to the guy I saw across the boardroom on The Apprentice. It may sound trite to do that, but you got to remember, for most nights, for three hours, I watched this guy interacting with people. He was a very different person, very different, much more charming, much more, um, you know, towards the female contestants, towards people who'd had a hard time, much more empath empathetic. Uh, we didn't get this brash, often quite boorish guy that you see a lot of when he was president. Um, I think if you want to understand why Trump became like that when he became president go and read his book the art of the deal which i read several times before competing in his show it's probably why i won it because i used to talk to him like it was him um but you know he's he says in there somebody punches you punch them 10 times back that's his natural default thing he has the thinnest skin of anyone in the world but he has the thickest too so he reacts to everything but he can soak up pressure that would destroy any other politician the fascinating double skin quality he has um, but his natural thing is to be a New York real estate magnate pugilist, right? And if you take him on, as everybody did immediately, and tried to kill him off, he will fight back with everything he's got. That's just his instinct. You know, I, I agree with you when you say the Democrats need to move away from Joe Biden. But I also feel like Republicans are doing themselves a disservice by not moving away from Trump because it's hard to say you're not the party of white supremacy when you're supporting a guy who 
you know, did an attempt to coup this country, a guy who says he wants to be a dictator for a day, a guy who's talking about, you know, killing his political rival. Yeah, right so let me stop. Uh, more importantly, yeah. a guy who said you should eliminate the Constitution right. in order to overturn the results of an election. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, you can't have somebody, you know, a leader of the free world who doesn't believe in the Constitution. I agree. And I think the other thing you've always got to be mindful about with Trump is not to take everything he says too literally. No, you have to. Oh, you don't have to. I'll take, give, give, when you're the president, you got to. I give, we, you, know, give, you shouldn't take us too literally because we're just media personalities. You definitely take us too seriously. <laughs> uh, no, I think if you look at, look at, for example, the other day in Iowa, right? He comes out with his crack on the eve of the, of the vote. And he said, look, I don't care if you're sick at home. Just tell your wife, darling, I've got to go and vote. And he said, and if it does, if you end up passing away, at least your vote wasn't wasted, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I watch people on CNN, my old employers, trying to be po-faced about it, right? Mm -hmm. He's basically risking the lives of people in Iowa. No, he wasn't. He was cracking a Trump gag, right? Mm -hmm. And one of his Trump cards, literally, is his humor, right? People in middle America find him hilarious, mm -hmm. right? People in New York pretend not to, but probably laugh quietly at a lot of his stuff. A lot of the other characters, uh, candidates seem very dull by comparison. If he wasn't running for leader of the free world, top three funniest people on the planet. Yes. I agree. So, <laughs> so, um, but also, you know, you got to remember, he comes from a business real estate in New York where bullshitting is an art form, right? They're, that's what they do, right? They they just try and persuade people something's worth what it's not. So his entire life has been spent exaggerating, going over the top, all that kind of stuff. And I always say, if you actually, an interesting question for you guys, if you took away all Trump's rhetoric, which you can't do, but mm -hmm. his rhetoric and his tweeting when he's president, take all that away, right? So you never actually hear him speak. Mm -hmm. You just judge him on what he did. What did he actually do that was so outrageous? He implemented, uh, he put three conservative judges on the Supreme Court. That's who, perfectly who, his right. Yes, yeah, sure. But they, they look how... Conservatives would say that's an amazing success. Absolutely. But look how far right they are. They got rid of Roe v. Wade, right? They got rid of affirmative action in colleges. They're gutting the Voting Rights Act, want to get rid of the Voting Rights yep. Act altogether. I'm, I'm not, I'm not they, cool well, with that. Hang on. I would say, and I'm not a conservative mm -hmm. by, by definition, I would say that they pursued a conservative agenda. Nothing secretive about that. They did what conservatives would want conservative-appointed, Republican-appointed judges on the Supreme Court to do. Mm -hmm. Trump just got lucky that he was able to do it three times in one tenure. He just got lucky, right? You could argue with the tactics of the Democrats allowing some of those uh, Democrat-appointed judges to go on too long. Yeah, but the thing allowing they got, them to die on his watch. But the things they got rid of directly impact, you know, people. It directly impact people that look like me and yeah. you know people that I love. I got four daughters. Mm. You know, Roe v. Wade is a big deal, and Listen, I think I agree. I agree yeah. with you personally, but that is that is democracy, mm -hmm. right? What you're challenging there is actually a constitutional right of an American president to nominate Supreme Court justices. He just happened to be able to do it three times in one tenure. Mm -hmm. That happened to now skew the, the court conservative. But you asked but, me what he, did he do? Yeah, but you can't blame Trump for appointing conservative judges on the Supreme Court. Any Democrat would do the same the other way. Sure, but he takes credit for Roe v. Wade being gone. Yeah. Him personally. He, he doesn't agree with you and I. I'm making an assumption here mm -hmm. about your view. He doesn't agree. I, I believe in a woman's right to have an abortion. Okay? I think it's awful that there are states in America which are going to make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. I would counter that by saying there are many countries around the world where it's completely illegal to have an abortion. You can't go to Poland and have an abortion mm -hmm. legally, for example. Uh, Malta, I think, is another one. Right? The UK has some of the loosest abortion laws in the world. The current legal term is 24 weeks or something, right? Um, so 
And he, and he led an attempted coup of this country to overturn the results of an election. I agree. And I wrote a column at the time saying I thought it was a despicable assault on democracy, right? And that all plays to Trump is hates losing. Uh, he got in his, into his head. I think he genuinely believes the election mm -hmm. was stolen. I think he had a lot of people around him, Giuliani and the other people, who were telling him 24-7 it was stolen wrongly from you. And because the number of votes involved is like 40,000 votes, a tiny number of votes, mm -hmm. right, which he had to, in his head, compute into a loss. He couldn't do it. And that's a failing of Trump. And his failure to honor the result of that election was a disgrace. And I've told him to his face, and he lost his shit with me in an interview and gave it to me, you know, and you're a fool and you're this. I said, well, maybe I am the fool. But I just think if you're an American president and you lose, you accept defeat. I said, there's no doubt the American political system is one of the most secure in the world. The voting system is one of the most secure in the world. So I don't agree with him about that. Mm -hmm. But, but, and it's an, an interesting but, I come back to, you take away all the rhetoric, mm -hmm. actually judge him on what he did. He didn't take America into any wars. That's a big plus to me. Big plus. Right? He had interesting relations with traditional American enemies, North Korea, China, Russia, right? Did that help or hinder American interests? Would Vladimir Putin have invaded Ukraine if Trump had still been president? I don't know the answer, mm -hmm. but he had an interesting way of going about relationships with these people, which America has traditionally been very hostile towards. And there's, you know, if you look at him purely on his foreign policy, I thought he was right about NATO, not in getting rid of it, but in making other countries pay their dues. They're now all paying their dues. Big tick in the box for Trump. He was right. Why should America be paying for everything? If you're a signed up member of NATO and you want the American military to come and support you, you pay your 2% or whatever it was, right? And now they all have to. So Trump did a lot of effective things with his barrel-like thing. He was right, for example, uh, to take, take on the Germans about their over-reliance on Russian energy. Because when it came to it, Russia turned the tap off and Germany was screwed. So Trump has these sort of, you know, he has these instincts. If Trump gets sometimes back. Sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong, mm. right? But I don't think it's as straightforward as he's Hitler or he's an angel. Mm. He's somewhere in well, the Well, Hitler middle. didn't start off Hitler either. I'm sure you've read uh, yeah, but the Trump's fall of the Third Trump Reich is never before. going to kill 12 million people. I can guarantee you, he's not going to do that. I, I don't, think, fact, I don't think anybody thought about that about Hitler either in the beginning. Well, yeah, he showed a lot more sign of it than Trump. But I think the idea of equating someone like Trump to Hitler is stupid. Again, it comes back to that Chris Rock thing. Don't over-demonize the guy. You may have to have him as president here for another four years, right? I would urge Donald Trump to change. Right? He's got to stop being in defense mode the whole time, right? Have a more. That's why I come back to his speech in Iowa. Mm. He suddenly started sounding much more inclusive. I want to bring independents and Democrats with me this time, right? Has he learned lessons? Has he, does he regret quietly what went on with January? I bet he does, right? Mm -hmm. Knowing Trump, I bet he does. He'll never admit it, but I bet he does. Would he pivot to a more inclusive president second time around? Has he learned lessons? I don't know the answer to those questions. Um, I know that his style enrages a lot of people. But it also delights a lot of people. Piers, I know that's your guy, but I don't believe none of the bullshit that's coming out of his mouth. What have I said that's wrong? As far as what? As far as Trump, my reading of him. Well, even if you talk about uh, you know, uh, what, what he would do in regards to Russia and Ukraine, I personally think if Russia gets back, I mean, Trump gets back into the White House in 2024, he would turn his back and let Russia do whatever they want Maybe. to Ukraine. But if you judge him on what he actually... I think, I, I think if he actually judges foreign policy on what he did as president, 
There's yeah, no sign of, of that. To me, to me, none of that, all of that failed in comparison to how he does not give a damn about American democracy. I, I when, agree. When you, when you got a guy literally saying, let's get rid of the Constitution to overturn the mm. results mm. of an election. I like, agree. I, I'm not, like, no. Like, I agree. Yeah, I'm not. I agree. I'm, and there's he, a very, Ameri- if you, he's the I guy agree. who says America first. And there's a very good so, argument that someone who does that should not be allowed to run again. Absolutely. However, your Constitution makes it crystal clear that he can run again. And in fact, even- Not the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment said, if you tried to lead a coup of this country, you are ineligible know, to be president. That, that's, president. Let me tell you what's going to happen. The states that have tried to play that card, it'll go to the Supreme Court and they're going to throw it out. You know why? Because he's got Republican judges. Yes, that he put in place. Come on, but you know why Cut he, it out. You know, why, you know why he uh-huh. was able to? Because he was elected your president right. in 2016. You're right. You're so, right. So You're right. The, if Americans didn't want Trump as president, don't vote for him. And the same applies now. Mm. Don't vote for the guy because you know what? If he can pack the Supreme Court with more Republican judges next time around, that's exactly what and he'll you do. Know what? As the Democrats will do as well. No, Democrats won't do because they don't have the courage to do that. They could have done things like that. Even when Barack Obama could have implemented Merrick Garland, he chose to follow the rules of democracy because Mitch McConnell that told was him. A, that, Mitch McConnell told him, "Hey, it's too late in your presidency to implement." That a was Supreme a Court tactical justice. error. Yes, because when when Trump got the uh, chance to do it, he did it. But let me ask you. And Mitch McConnell didn't encourage it. We're welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Teledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the coaches surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall, will give us his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will be bringing his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoop takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Teledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. 
Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Like Pastor Troy doing the ad-libs for one of Justin Timberlake's biggest hits. Whenever you listen to Cry Me a River, man, I'm all through them ad-libs on that song. It's that one one Cry Me a River, Y'all hear this, man? listen to it, man. And what if I told you Jazzy Faye and CeeLo have an unreleased album just sitting in the vault waiting? Now, you and CeeLo had a group for a minute, man. Yeah, we got a whole album in the can. We got a, we have a whole album. Now I have partnered with iHeart Podcast to bring you one of the hottest podcasts in the game, telling you some of the most unheard stories in the music industry. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To Obama. So this is an interesting little question I always throw people. Interesting if you guys know the answer. How many uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants, did Barack Obama deport in his eight years as president? Oh, I don't know. Have a guess. No clue. No clue. Mm-mm. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know. I mean, I know it was a lot, but I don't know the exact number. Have a guess. Oh, I don't know. Give me, give me a number. I actually have read that it's more than Trump. Give, give me a number. I really don't know. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Eight years. Eight years. How many, how, many, how many people did he physically have deported in eight years? I have no idea. Well, give me a number. <laughs> you don't want it, do you? No, I really don't know. I really I don't know even where to begin. I don't know if it's tens of thousands, millions. I don't know where to begin. Hmm? But I've read, I've read answer, that it was more than Trump. The answer is over 3 million. Damn. He was known as deporter-in-chief by Mexicans. Yes, and right. that was more than Trump. Did. He deported way more than yeah, Trump. He deported that. way more pro rata than any president in history. Who dropped the most bombs in a calendar year in American history? Oh, I, come on. President Barack Obama. Barack Obama, yeah, yeah, right? Including drone programs mm-hmm. and so on, right? Who got elected in 0809 on shutting down Guantanamo Bay? Because as a former lawyer, he believed it was an illegal... Uh, institution, President Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah. What is still open today? Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Correct, right? Etc. 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 So I know that the general thing is Obama, angel, Trump, devil. Right. But if you actually apply the scrutiny that we give Trump, put it this way: if Trump had deported three million people, you think you guys wouldn't know that answer? 
Of course he would, mm-hmm. right? Nobody knows that answer because nobody thought that way about St. Barack. And I think that he wasn't St. Barack and Trump isn't the devil. Trump has a more devilish way of talking and he has to be held absolutely to account. And it's a very good argument to say after what happened on January the 6th, he shouldn't be allowed to run again, but he is allowed to run again. And in fact, he can be convicted of a crime before the election and still be allowed to run as president. That's insane. And he could actually go to prison and still be president of the United States constitutionally from a prison cell. Mm -hmm. So this is not my constitution. These Mm -hmm. aren't my rules. This is the reality. So I'm not sitting here (laughs) saying you should vote for Trump. I'm not defending Trump, I I think, irrationally. I'm simply presenting a slightly fairer argument about why Trump is now back in the position he's in and why he could win again than some people want to present because they think it it doesn't suit them politically to say that. How often do you speak to Trump? I haven't spoken to him since we fell out over the last interview. Um, But I'm sure I will do. And I'm sure that I had a chat with him before the last election. I said, after the pandemic stuff, I fell out with him when when he did some ridiculous announcement that the best way to solve um, COVID was to inject yourself with bleach. I remember. Right? And I wrote a column saying, Mr. President, your batshit crazy ideas are Mm going to get people killed, right? Mm -hmm. Stop it. And he unfollowed me on Twitter, which was no big, no small <laughs> thing because he only followed 50 things on Twitter. Half right. of them were companies. The other, most of the other half were his family. Mm-hmm. I was the only non-American, I think, he followed on Twitter. This became a big story. I didn't speak to him for a few months. And about a week before the election, maybe two weeks before, I was doing Fox and Friends. And they said, what, you, know, you know Donald Trump. What advice would you give him? And I said, I looked down the barrel of the camera. I went, well, if he wants my advice, I said, it's not too late. Just give me a call, Mr. President. Next morning, I get a call from Air Force One, I think it was, uh, Mr. President of the United States. So when he came, like nothing had happened. How does that come on your call ID? I'm just curious. Huh? Does it come on the Air Force One on your call ID? No, it was, it was no call. I never normally answer. I happened to be at home with my daughter, and she just said a hilarious thing that morning on the school run. She was about, I can't remember, she was only about eight or nine. She said, she said, Daddy, she said, you know, I know you keep saying that Donald Trump is a unique character. Mm-hmm. She said, I think he's too unique. <laughs> anyway, next thing, literally, like two hours later, we're sitting there and the phone goes and it's and it's the White House switchboard putting me through to the president. And I no. said to Elise, Donald Trump, can I talk to him? I went, probably not a good idea. Uh, but we had like a half-hour conversation. And I said, look, if you really want some advice, I said, it's this. You've got to start being more empathetic. I said, your behavior through the whole pandemic has been, it's all about you. The stock market crashing is... Is you know is damaging your election chances, right? You're airing these stupid theories about COVID from a presidential podium, which if people listen to them, they're going to kill themselves. It's madness. Where's I said you want you just want to be commander in chief, but actually you can be comforter in chief. That's equally important. Put your arm around America sometimes, right? As, as president, be the comforter in chief. Mm-hmm. Millions of people are getting COVID. Many of them are dying, right? Many of them are suffering horrendous. Uh, problems with COVID. Put your arm around the country and be empathetic. You got it yourself. Yeah, is, it true, you. is it true you applied to be Trump's chief of, chief of staff? No. Oh, that was a joke. Totally made up. I would never work for him. Yeah. Um, and I would never uh, tell people to vote, to vote for him. That's mm-hmm. not my business. I'm not American. Uh, I have a house here. I love the country. love the people. It's your country. It's your vote. Mm-hmm. But all I would say is that you did vote him in in 2016. I didn't. Right, and I know Trump very, very well. Stop rubbing it in. No, no, but it's on you, <laughs> right? It's on you. And I you, didn't vote for him. And, and I, all I see now is the Democrats whining about Trump's comeback. One of the reasons he's soaring back 
is because there's such a perceived weakness in Biden. Biden's approval ratings are Democrats, shocking. Democrats suck. Shocking, right? Yeah, no suck. incumbent president, I think, has ever been reelected with these approval numbers. So this, mm-hmm. if you, you know, the country, most people in America think the country's going the wrong way. Most of them are feeling economic hardships. Most of them, you know, have all sorts of problems with the way the country's been run. They, and they think back to Trump and they think for all the garbage that comes out of his mouth, mm-hmm. they look at the, the way he handled the economy until the pandemic and they think, actually, we were better off under Trump. They look at his foreign policy and they think, actually, we didn't start poking our nose in all over the place with wars here, left, right and centre. And they like that. Most Americans I've spoken to. Um, you know, they, think, they think he took immigration a lot more seriously, for example, than Biden seems to be doing. The situation, on, your, everything you're saying situation is, on the southern border is catastrophic. Correct. Everything you're saying is absolutely right. And the polls show it. What happened in Iowa yeah. shows it. You, you just preach it to the choir. There's a so bl- when you say to me, Charlemagne, though, when, just to pull you up, when you say to me, I don't think you believe a word of what you're saying. All I'm doing is presenting facts, right? I'm not launching a campaign no, I, I for think Trump. I, yeah, I'm I put, just, I'm I push just back on the just be more empathetic. It's like, nah, he's done. We, if, Only because I've seen him be that. And he has that in his locker. When people he show just, you who they are, you got to believe them. We, we, we've seen enough of Trump to know who he is. I agree. And Trump, good, bad, and ugly, is who he is. He's mm-hmm. not going to change at 77, right? Mm-hmm. He's not. So you know what you're getting. You know what you're voting for this time. If America votes him in again, it's because they want to. That's a fact. Yeah. Right? You can't That's get right. away from that. That's right. And by the way, his his popularity amongst African Americans is rising as Biden's falls. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Is it I remember when Biden came on this show, right? And he started. Was oh, yeah. It, yeah, me, yeah. Yeah. yeah, with you. And, he's, me, and he started saying, if you don't vote for me, then you're not black. You're all right. It was a stupid joke, but what a stupid thing to say. And actually, how ironic that ever since he said it, <laughs> the kind of black votes disappeared from him, right? Yeah. Is there a candidate that could beat him? Do you think that there is a candidate that could beat Trump? I, If I yeah, were the I Democrats, I would absolutely go for somebody like Newsom, right? Yes, he's progressive, but he's moved himself to the center very skillfully mm-hmm. This in the last six months to a year. He's been to China and met President Xi. You think President Xi was going to meet the governor of California unless he thinks he might actually end up president one day? He He looks like a president. He looks like someone that could run the country. He's articulate. He's intelligent. He's run one of the biggest states in in the country. I think he has a lot of things going for him. I don't necessarily agree with the more progressive stuff, but I think he himself has realized his pathway to to running the Democrats and to potentially becoming president is to move more to the middle ground, right? And if he does that, and he's given a chance to do that, and that can be the the options for America between Trump and someone like Newsom, I think he's got a very good chance, a better chance than Biden. I agree. Um, let's, let's, there's a great black philosopher by the name of Lil Boosie. Yeah, and yeah. He, he's, he makes a statement. He said, I don't want to talk about it no more. It's enough. <laughs> That's how I feel about the political conversation. Yeah, right yeah. Now. But I do want to talk to you. Do you regret what you said about Meghan Markle in regards to her mental health? Because, you know, I'm a huge mental health advocate. Yeah. And none of us know what people are truly going through. Do you mm. believe that you were insensitive to her mental health? Well, for, to be- for, for people that don't know, what, what, what did you say? So she went on Oprah Winfrey yep. in that infamous interview, and she made a claim that she had had suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. and she'd gone to a senior member of the Buckingham Palace staff mm-hmm and asked for help and was told you can't have any effectively because it would be bad for the royal brand. I did not believe that happened. So what's happened since? This is over two years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Ever since then, not a single shred of evidence or a name of that person has ever been produced. Prince Harry writes a book of over 400 pages, never mentions this, didn't mention the racism claims either. It was like they never happened. He then said later, I didn't mean to say that the royal family were racist. We didn't. It was the media. Bullshit. 
you said that members of the royal family it turned out to be King Charles and uh, and Kate had expressed con negative concern about the potential skin color of your baby, which that conversation will have never happened. And there is no evidence that it happened in the way they tried to imply. Well, Oprah, Oprah gasped in horror. And so for two years, the royal family have had to deal with being accused of being callous racists who don't care about a young woman's suicidal thoughts and don't care that, about being brazenly racist about the skin color of their child. I said, I don't believe those things happened. So you weren't dismissing her mental health and what she may have been no, going No, and in fact, you I were went- dismissing what she- No, and I went on, to, I went on the, the, my morning show the next morning and spent a minute clarifying my view about mental health, mm -hmm. right? I think mental health is incredibly important. People should talk about mental health. But on that specific thing, did I, I, I repeat it. Is it feasible that somebody at Buckingham Palace at a high level said to a young woman who said, I feel suicidal, you cannot get help. And by the way, Harry at the time was the figurehead of a major mental health charity. Why couldn't he get her help? Right? None of it made sense to me. Mm -hmm. But in his book, it never gets mentioned. There's not a mention of her mental health or suicidal thoughts. Right? There's not a mention of the supposed racism again. It's like it never happened. That's a good point about what you said about Prince Harry. So why he is a big mental health advocate. Huge. Too. So yeah, why do you yeah. think that she's lying? Or if, I think if she's a liar. And I think he, unfortunately, is a liar too. And we saw it again this week. They, they called their daughter Lilibet. Mm -hmm. Now, that at the time was an incredibly sensitive thing because the, Prince Philip was dying. And he, uh, this was his nickname for his wife, the Queen. And only a very tiny number of people called her Lilibet, including him mainly. So he would sign, you know, she would sign letters to him, Lilibet. It was very special. And it, it emerged that Harry and Meghan were going to call their, their daughter Lilibet, okay? And then when there was a big furore about this, they said, well, we had the permission of the Queen. Turned out to be an absolute lie. They did not have the permission of the Queen. Wow. A book has just come out written by a very authoritative journalist with full access to all the royals, mm -hmm. uh, including all the royal household. And they've made it crystal clear that the royal household said they'd never seen the Queen so angry as when she discovered they were going to call their daughter Lilibet, mm. her private nickname from her husband, who had by now died, right? Wow. So I'm afraid I think they speak with forked tongue. And I think it's caused enormous damage to the royal family's reputation, not least here and in the Caribbean, where, of course, many countries still are part of the Commonwealth. I think a lot of uh, black people around the world thought, wow, they're just a bunch of nasty racists. And there's never been any evidence. And when I found out, through this, you may remember a few weeks ago, this guy Omid Scobie, who wrote a book about uh, always supporting the Sussexes, wrote a new book about the downfall of the monarchy, as he put it. And a, a Dutch version of the book mm -hmm. suddenly named Charles and Kate as the people who supposedly made these racist remarks. Everyone in Britain went, oh, don't be so ridiculous, right? They're the last two people on earth who'd ever be racist or say something of the negative context about a, a skin color of a baby. And I would ask you guys an interesting question, which I asked at the time, uh, to huge furore again. But when you have a white father, Megan's father's white, and a black mother, and you're about to have a baby as the daughter, is it not a common conversation where someone might say, oh, by the way, what color might the baby be? Is that not a perfectly normal question to ask when you have white one white parent one black parent i would say it is you know who you should have on your show to have this discussion a great scholar in america named dr umar johnson right you should have but dr. what do you what do you guys <laughs> think you but what do you guys think honestly I've, I've never heard that conversation 
but do you know people in that position? No, I've never heard them. Okay, say so what? I do, right? Yeah. I know in Britain. I haven't. I'm not in Britain. It's pretty common, right? You have a never, lot of never, lot of mixed race been. parents, and then you have a child, and it's and they, they all came out and said, "Well, yeah, we've had that conversation." So the question then becomes not the question if that was what was said. We don't. We still don't know. Right. It becomes what was the intonation of the question? Was there a negative concern element to that question? Was it was well? I hope it isn't going to be too dark. Now, nobody, nobody believes Charles or Kate would have ever said anything like that. Why do you think they're trying to take down? It seems like you're saying they're trying to take down the royal family yes. or make them look bad or make them look Whilst like Whilst keeping their royal titles, which well, I think well, is sickening hypocrisy. Well, why? Why do you think they would want to do that? Because I think, I have to say, I think Meghan Markle is a very manipulative person who... You don't uh, like her at all, do you? Not at all. I think she's been poisonous to our royal family's reputation, very damaging to the monarchy. And I'm a huge monarchist and support. Uh, I think you know. If, I have to ask if she was 100% Caucasian. Oh, I didn't. Would, would you would you feel the same? It, if it was the same rhetoric, oh, oh my god, she was doing the same thing. I wouldn't say she was white. Yeah, we Let know what you mean. Would you say she's poisoning the royal family? Only if she accused him of being a bunch of racists, with no evidence. Well, she couldn't do that if she was well, if yeah, she was white, right? Of course. Right. So, so obviously, it's only because she herself, mm -hmm. right, uh, is well, she says she's black. Uh, she's from a mixed race parenting she made incredibly serious allegations about the royal family being racist and has produced no evidence and like i say why did harry not mention this in his book if it was that serious he probably loves his family still he probably he, he hates he, his family he doesn't talk to any of his family mm. you think she he ha really hates, she hates them, she doesn't talk to anyone in her family mm -hmm. right so you have somebody from a toxic family herself who only talks really to her mother at the wedding she only had one guest the mother right and, you know, you asked me, did Meghan Markle's skin color play any part in my argument about it? No, right to the point she played the race card with no evidence, which I thought was disgraceful. Uh, and there's been no evidence since. So you was fine with her up until that point? I got on very well with Meghan Markle before yeah. she met Harry. I thought she was perfectly nice. Right? I mm -hmm. liked suits. I thought she was good in it. So you still wear suits? Uh, yeah. Okay. Love suits. I absolutely love suits. And uh, so it was never, a, I, if I wrote a piece, which you can go and find on the day they got married, mm -hmm. a big piece for the Mail on Sunday, saluting this wonderful moment for the royal family of the first biracial marriage we'd had. Mm -hmm. Everyone in Britain celebrated this. Britain, is you got to understand about Britain, we're a very multicultural, tolerant country. Mm -hmm. By every poll that comes out, people consider Britain to be one of the most tolerant, multicultural places on earth. And I would say that having lived there most of my life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have the kind of incendiary race issues that you have in America. All the history just doesn't exist in the same way. And that's why what happened on that Oprah interview was so shocking and so damaging. And then the question became, well, was it true? Mm -hmm. And I've got to say, sitting here now, two years later, no, it wasn't true. How would she prove that if it was, though? Like, How would she prove she went to somebody and expressed her mental health concerns? Like, How would anybody be able to fact check that? She just has to give us a name. Who was it? Oh, got you, got you. Got Who was you, it? Got you, got you. And she could have named the alleged royal racists and let them defend themselves. Mm -hmm. But instead, by not naming them, you got to remember in the Oprah interview, she said that the race, racism comments were made to Harry when she was pregnant. He said it was before they got engaged. That's a year and a half apart. They couldn't even decide what year this was supposed to have happened. Mm. So a lot of it just smelt to me of being wrong, untrue, very damaging. Um, but no, my, none of my criticism of Meghan Markle has got anything to do with her skin color or upbringing or anything. In fact, I would think more of her because of her background. I think it was, as I wrote in my 
peace on the day they got married. This is a great moment for our monarchy, which is a very white family, obviously, mm-hmm. just historically, right? I don't blame them. It's just like a lot of families in Britain, like their family, they're very white. It was great to see someone who was not from the normal background. Is that really the reason you let go? Got, got let go by ITV? Yeah, I didn't believe her. And I was told if you if you don't apologize for disbelieving it, then what they didn't tell me when this ultimatum was put to me, they didn't tell me that the night before she had written to the female boss of ITV and demanded she fire me. Wow. Personally. Wow. Right? And they didn't tell me that. If I'd known that, I would never have quit. I'd have had the public debate. I'd have had the argument. I wasn't going to be held ransom by some lying Princess Pinocchio, as I called it. Did you um, want to quit or did they like no, force you out? No, they said you apologize or you, you have to leave. So you got fired, essentially. Well, I could have apologized and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and groveled, but why would I do that? You know, you, you once said after the Meghan Markle interview that freedom of speech is a hill you're happy to die on and you're off to spend more time with your opinions. In this era of everybody having an opinion and a voice, should people be able to say whatever they want without consequences? Well, there are, listen, even under the First Amendment, which is the most brilliant protection of free speech probably anywhere in the world, there are limitations, mm-hmm. right? Child pornography and, mm-hmm. and so on. There are things that you can't say mm-hmm. because they have repercussions. Mm-hmm. There are laws that govern these things, right? I had an argument with Elon Musk about this, um, about bringing Alex Jones back to X, for example. Yeah, because, Elon called Alex Jones a free speech hero. You called him a hate speech monster. Which he is. Uh, and the truth is Elon originally didn't bring him back and said, I don't think anyone who's exploited the deaths of children like that, and he talked about himself losing a child, um, no one like that should be allowed back on this platform when he first bought it. And then he did a U-turn, right? I haven't done a U-turn. I thought he was right the first time. You know, Alex Jones owes over a billion dollars to those Sandy Hook families for deliberately over many years systematically spreading lies about them to make himself very rich. Mm-hmm. He made hundreds of millions of dollars by deliberately promoting lies about Sandy Hook families grieving their children being blown to pieces at school. And I was on air when that happened. And I come from a country where very few people ever get shot dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, we have, we've had one mass shooting in God knows how long. You, know, you have one every two days, right? Mm-hmm. It's a totally different culture. We don't have a gun ownership culture. But I remember the pain of those families and the fact that this guy was sitting there in his Texas studio deliberately saying they were actors, making it all up, blah, 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 for money. And there was a direct correlation. He would say this stuff and you'd see a huge spike in his revenues. And we're talking tens of millions Mm -hmm. pouring into the coffers by making these people even more miserable than they were already. I think it's unconscionable. Um, But it's also covered by the First Amendment defamation exclusion, right? Defamation is not covered by the First Amendment. He's been found guilty of one of the biggest defamations in American history. But that alone, I don't think he should be allowed back on X. And Elon Musk has banned a lot of people from X, by the way. So there's nothing unusual about banning Mm -hmm. people from X, even in his free speech Mm -hmm. world. And I think he's done a lot lot of good for free speech, Elon Musk. But there are limits. Of course there are. But generally speaking, if you're not spewing hateful stuff, which is, I mean, you've got to remember, somebody listened to Alex Jones and went to the grave of one of the Sandy Hook victims and urinated on it. That's crazy. That's because crazy. they believed it was all staged. That's crazy. That's crazy. Imagine being the family of that child. And then you end up hurting that guy. Because if, right? you, if you're a father and you but pull imagine, up and, But oh, that, was, that was the consequence. Oh, Others were chased down the street with people screaming abuse at them for being actors. Right? 
acting that their child had been obliterated by an AR-15 at school. Yeah. And, you know, one of them said to me, I, I won't say which one, but one of the parents said to me, you know, they'd seen some pictures and that the uh, AR-15 that this monster had used, uh, Lanza, created holes the size of golf balls in their child. Mm. Multiple, all over their body. Golf balls. Right? And this person decided, Alex Jones, to exploit that to make himself very rich. And I, I think that's, I would think most Americans actually, when you hear me spell it out like that, would think that crosses a line. That's right. Okay, so when it comes to, and just to go back real quick, Trump got taken off a lot of your yeah. social media platforms. I thought that was wrong. For the same reason though. He shouldn't have been because, and this is a difference, I think world leaders, everything they say is a matter of historical record. No, not yes. Trump. Not when Trump's pushing conspiracy theories. Yes. Like not only that, telling people he could use well, okay, okay, to, okay, to kill look, COVID. They took, off, they took off Trump, mm -hmm. but they kept on the le leader of the Taliban. They kept on the Ayatollah uh, in Iran. They kept Vladimir Putin's account, right? So are you comfortable that Trump is the one that's removed? But is Putin telling people, like you said, they inject themselves with, with bleach, bleach to cure and, COVID, and where they could die? Pushing YouTube conspiracy Putin theories. Putin is spewing conspiracy bullshit about Ukraine being a bunch of Nazis, and he's denazifying them. That, yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah, All yeah. the time. But Taliban yeah. is spewing their bullshit on Twitter. The Ayatollah is talking about eradicating Israel. So how do you regulate this stuff? Cause see, my, I, my, think I draw a distinction between ordinary members of the public and world leaders, world leaders. world leaders worse? Because I, I think we're going to have some Orson Welles war to world. World stuff leaders, I think everything they say and do is a matter of historical record. You can't hide it away. Your Trump, I would argue, has got more popular by being taken off Twitter. But how is Pizzagate historical record? Huh? It's how, not. So people, so I think what Elon's done that's great. Mm -hmm. He's brought in the community notes, right? So now you can see in real time under these tweets that people put up, which are conspiracy theory nonsense. You can see the true story immediately. That was lacking before. So these things would fly around without anyone you know, being able to look at it and see the real story underneath it. None of that's going to work, Pidge. Like we, had, we were talking this morning about- but Where do you draw the line, though? I don't know, because here's the thing. We were talking about do, it this do morning. Do you take every world leader off, off X? It it depends if what they're doing. If they're lying, if what they're doing, they have that much power. If, yes, you if have what to. they're doing is inciting violence in any way, shape, or form, yeah. or can cause to. death. Because the truth of the matter yes. is, people are stupid. Yeah, and like even with the watermarks and, yeah, no, the, and, and the things that are saying this isn't true, people will say they're just saying this isn't true because they don't want us to believe the I, truth. I I hear you. I hear you. Uh, it's, it's it's tricky, but it's man. very difficult once you go down that line. It and is, I, and the line I've is. drawn, for better or worse, and your listeners can make their own minds up. I think world leaders of any kind. It's historical record. And if you take one down, you've got to take them all off mm. because a lot of them say bad things. I wanted to ask you, too, about the 2004 pictures. Mm. You couldn't fact check them then. Well, we tried. Yeah, yeah, I mean, shit, is, shit is way worse now. So how do you fact check as a that's, personality? That, that's a really, I, mean, that, I mean, I think the fake news thing, the, um, the way artificial intelligence can now have someone like me. I've seen a clip played at a TED talk, actually, of me promoting guns. I... It looked, it was me, and it sounded like this is what I was saying. Wow. But it was fake. Wow. And saying the complete opposite to what I was thinking. And that's going to happen more and more and more. And it's very easy to do now. It's incredibly easy to do. You see it all the time. It's very, very scary. And I don't think anyone's quite worked out what you do about this. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's, it's a bit like artificial intelligence generally. I interviewed Professor Stephen Hawking in the last interview before he died up at his office at Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's the biggest threat to mankind? He went, when artificial intelligence learns how to self-design. 
all over because they'll decide pretty quickly humans are ridiculous and should just be killed. Um, and you can tell that a lot of the experts, like Elon Musk and others, think we're getting quite close to that point. That's why they called for the six-month pause recently in a letter signed by a 1,000 of them. They know that AI is incredibly exciting and groundbreaking and brilliant and can probably save a lot of lives and all the rest of it. They also know that in the wrong hands, AI can be a lethal weapon. And this is going to be the dilemma for this generation. What do we do about it? And to go back to what you said. Like the internet, right? Remember the internet? But this right. is far more dangerous. Yeah, to go, to go back to what you said, I don't think any world leader should be allowed to be on social media. Really? I think I think, be, I think as soon as you become a world leader, you have to give it That's up. An inter- that because a, it's too dangerous. Well, that is a very interesting... Fake tweets, the AI stuff. You know stuff. what? I think you're all in or all out. Yes. So I'm with you. I would personally still argue they should be on, but I think that's a, that's a good argument to say you take them all off. They, the world leaders can't tweet. They can make official statements, and the yes. media can determine yes. how they report those. And if they're spewing untruths and deliberate lies, which are going to lead to potential violence, the media can say that in real time. Because I, you, I, I, I don't see, see that's a difficult thing because you always say go where people are, right? And a lot of people are not looking at the news for the press conferences. It's horrible. We could say yeah, it's bad, but people mm. are not. People will follow Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Uh, Biden faster than they'll watch a news clip on. But TV. those official statements will get pressed, get sent out through social media. You mm-hmm. know, I just think it's too dangerous because if I know world leaders are on social media, how do I know this tweet isn't real if it's a fake tweet? That's how true. do I know this AI video that's posted but on? You know, the page, moment people oh, hear hacked, is, the right. moment people hear hear this, right, they're going to go nuts and say, "You know, every world leader, you know, uh, freedom of speech." Blah, 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 and, right. But I get your argument. Too much power. I get your argument, and it it that 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 to me makes more sense than piecemeal taking some off and leaving others on, where there's a rank hypocrisy. I think you've got to have the same rule for all world leaders. Right? Because you could, you could, I could, as like I did with Obama earlier, you can create an argument for and against almost anybody, mm-hmm. particularly if they're a president of a big country. So I think you've got to be all in or all out. I got, I got just a few more questions. Um, you, you, you talked earlier about Tony Blair, and you mm-hmm. said you were anti-war. What war was that? The, the Iraq War. The, yeah. yeah. Why, why aren't you anti-war now in regards to the? Uh, well, I felt what I felt with the Iraq War was I felt that it was America and Britain going after the wrong country for 9/11, and they hadn't produced evidence to me that Saddam Hussein had weapons That's of mass destruction, and they never found those weapons of mass destruction. So the war was fought on a false pretext, and therefore, in my view, actually was illegal. Tony Blair also didn't get a second UN resolution mandating warfare um which he thought he was going to get and when he didn't get he went along with america anyway and i think it was a catastrophic mistake that led to 20 years of hell in the middle east not least the rise of isis who sprang out of what happened um so i felt there was no justification for the war no moral justification no actual justification presented that was true turned out to be uh, to be false. So you're not anti-war. You were just no. I look at I look at moral. What is the moral justification? So the the case in uh, the latest uh, stage of the Israel uh, Gaza situation is that on October the seventh, Israel was subjected to one of the worst terror attacks of modern times, medieval barbarism involving the most horrendous assaults on women, children, and so on. And they had not just a moral justification to defend themselves against that attack and to go after those who perpetrated it, but actually have a duty to their citizens to do that. Not least because Hamas, through their official spokesman, said our intention afterwards is to do this again and again and again. Right. So 
there's a clear and present justification morally for Israel to respond to Hamas. Now, here's where it gets very complicated. Hamas have 35,000 terrorists, as I call them. You can call them whatever you want, but to me, they're terrorists. And they live immersed amongst a population, which is just over 2 million people, of which half are under 18 and just under a third are under 10. So you have an extraordinary number of innocent children mm -hmm. as part of the mass population. But living amongst them, in, embedded in their schools, the mosques, the hospitals, and so on. We know this mm -hmm. from the tunnel system that Hamas deliberately created. You have Hamas terrorists. How do you eradicate Hamas, 35,000 terrorists, who have done that without a lot of civilians getting killed? And so I've continually been asking and saying to people, I have a moral quandary about this. I don't know what is proportionate. I do know you cannot allow Hamas to continue running Gaza after what they did. They are a terror group who will commit more and more acts of terror. But is Israel's response now, as many people claim, itself an act of terror? Is it disproportionate to what happened to them on October the 7th? They've killed many more people, including many more children. As a father, it just absolutely destroys me to see these scenes coming out of Gaza. But you know, I understand why Israel feels this visceral need to eradicate Hamas. I do. What I don't accept with it from Israel is any desire by them out of this to continue having an occupation of the Palestinian people. And when you go back to the history, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians back in 1948, um, you can absolutely see that people were oppressed and had been occupied. And the you know constant flare-ups in this conflict throughout the next 70 years are as a consequence of a large number of people being very badly treated. Um, but that doesn't justify anything that happened October the 7th. So yes, I understand the history, but I think the difference between Iraq and this is that there's a clear moral justification for going after the people that perpetrated it. The problem is how do you minimize civilian casualties which happen in any conflict? And I would say the argument that Israel put forward, which is you know, a reasonable argument, nobody had these debates about what happened when we went after ISIS in Syria or Iraq. And many civilians, including many children, were killed then. Oh, they didn't see it. Social media changed exactly. the whole exactly. dichotomy of that. So we see it in real time. I have enormous sympathy for Palestinian people. I think for a long time they've been oppressed. There's been an obvious occupation. I think Israelis who try and deny that are, are deluding themselves. We saw that when they were able to turn off the Israelis, the energy supply like that, the water supply like that, the food supply like that. Imagine how Americans would feel if one of your neighboring countries had that power, mm -hmm. you would consider yourselves to be oppressed and occupied. Nobody outside of America should have the power to do that to you. That's how Palestinians feel. And I completely understand that. Is that a war crime? Um, well, the United Nations has found against Israel many times, you know, but to what consequence? Um, I have a lot of sympathy for Israelis. You've had to live under a hail of rockets since Hamas took charge in 2005 and living in daily fear of that. This is, a, this is an awful conflict. I would simply tell people that where they think there's no hope, I remember Northern Ireland and the IRA and the loyalists being at war and the terrorism that went on from IRA towards the British and so on. And eventually they did find peace. And in fact, the, the people uh, engaged in hating and fighting each other ended up working together. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can do this. I just think that I, uh, Hamas to me 
are now behaving like ISIS, a nihilistic terror group who don't care how many innocent people they kill. And they just want to see the, the eradication of Israel. You can't have that if you're Israel. Um, but it's, it's a horribly complicated situation. And I don't have easy answers other than out of it, you've got to try and get everybody in that region together to forge a two-state solution where they can live side by side in peace. And it, it, it was achieved in Northern Ireland after many decades of war. So it can be done, but you need strong leaders. I don't think that either side has good leaders. What you gave is a very nuanced answer. And I think most of these topics and issues that we try to discuss, there is nuance, mm. but everybody picks a side. You said something earlier about social media, which I think is true. I don't think people think for themselves anymore. I think people go on social media to see how they should feel Just go to their about tribe. issues. Yeah, and they, and, they opinion. and they exist in echo chambers where they only follow their own tribe, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they go in and they want to have a view and they want to read their view reinforced all day long. And anyone who deviates from that view on either side mm -hmm. of any of these things, whether it's Trump, whether it's Israel, Hamas, whether it's Brexit in England, you know, whatever the issue is, whether it's COVID vaccines, there's nuance is crucial, crucial. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm blameless. I remember getting very angry about people who didn't have vaccine, for example, when it was believed because the scientists told us that you couldn't transmit the virus if you had the vaccine, because then it wasn't just about you. It was about you infecting yeah. some person and killing them. But when it when they changed their minds and said, actually, it looks like you can transmit it even if you have the vaccine, I completely reversed my position. People went, disgusting U-turn. Well, yeah, because they U-turned the advice. No information. Now, mm -hmm. But I was too censorious about people who hadn't had a vaccine. It should be personal choice. Mm -hmm. What you put in your body should be personal choice. I accept that. And I got irrationally angry about that because everyone was a bit irrational through the pandemic. Um, but on Twitter, there's no room for nuance. And there has to be. If everyone could have conversations that we're having about all complicated issues, we'd get a lot further than we do having them on social media, where nobody gives an inch. And I don't think and any of us are trying to, to be right. The other side. Yeah. We're not trying to be right. We're just, just putting right. it out there. Having a conversation. Yeah. Th two more questions. What were your thoughts when you got called to replace Larry King in 2011? And were you shocked when it didn't work? Uh, well, I would argue about whether it worked or not. I mean, I did it for nearly four years. I mm -hmm. could have carried on working at CNN. They offered me a new gig to do just big interviews in, in several series a year, which I ended up not accepting. So it wasn't like CNN fired me. They offered me a new, a new gig, but it wouldn't be the daily thing. The problem with the daily thing for me was I wasn't American. And there were so many issues, not least guns, which kept coming back, where I just had an implacable different view to what most of the viewers would be thinking. You know, even most CNN viewers probably have a pretty relaxed view about guns. Mm. Whereas I looked at it as a Brit and went, you have more people murdered by guns a day than I think the next 20 civilized countries of the world combined. You know, we in Britain have an average of about two gun deaths a year. America has 80,000 or something a year. Mm of which I think half are suicides, whatever it is. These are crazy numbers. But ultimately, I realized that it's a matter for Americans. It's your country. It's your culture. I understand why people believe in gun ownership here. I understand why if there are 400 million guns in circulation, then you probably want to need to defend yourself with your own. I get Absolutely. it. I get it. Okay, so it's not, it's not my debate to have. So there was a cultural problem there. But actually, I went to CNN to do big interviews. And I did more big interviews in 
nearly four years and I think probably anyone outside Larry has ever done for them. That's when I first heard about you. And the interviews yeah. were amazing. I mean, I interviewed, you know, Bill Clinton twice, President Carter three times, Oprah Winfrey, the Dalai Lama, the president of Iran, uh, almost every celebrity you care to mention. And so when I look back at them, I had an amazing, I, mean, I did 1,200 shows, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a great time. But I, I felt, and CNN felt, we had a long chat, we just felt it kind of, I'd, I'd done my time. It was time. I was like, I miss home. I'm very British, really. I like pubs, our kind of pubs. I like cricket. I like proper football with a round ball. Uh, I'm an Arsenal fanatic. I love mm. going to watch that. It would you be like what? an Ar Arsenal. You know Arsenal? Oh, like you said, I'm an I asshole, said I'm an fanatic. asshole <laughs> fanatic. I'm like, you can do that in America. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? Can I, so that's you definitely miss Herman. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said to us. He's a little kinky. All right. hey, you miss Hermes, Hermes. <laughs> uh, Arsenal. Okay. Arsenal. Um, okay. Although we do say we're going up the arse on a Saturday, which yeah. is a, it can be a bit misleading. Um, but no, I, I loved all those things. And it would be a bit like, I would, I would equate it to you, if you suddenly went to London and you did this show from London for nearly four years, and you'd already lived in America pretty much doing America's Got Talent for six years. So for 10 years, I pretty much lived a lot of my time in in, uh, in the US. I and mean, when I was at CNN, probably for 48 weeks of a year. If you did that, I reckon after four years, you'd be gagging to get back to New York, right? Yeah, yeah. To get back to your friends, your old friends, your family, right. but also your culture. And I, I, a simple thing, like I would go into a cafe in New York or LA, and they'd all be talking about American cultural stuff. Politics, I loved it. But American sport, not so much, right? So they'd be talking about the big football match or the big baseball game or the basketball. But basketball is my favorite American sport, so I could have a little bit of a chat about that. But not with any expert view or any mm. history, right, of any history at all. When I go to my local cafe in London, there's all the guys in there, the same people, male, female, old, young, and we're all talking about the big Arsenal game the night before, the big cricket match, the, mm. our sport, our culture, right? And I miss that so much. Mm -hmm. And I love that so much. I get it. Now I have the best of all worlds where I do a show which is filmed mainly in London, but for about three months of a year I come to America. I love that. I come in and I, I stay each time just long enough for neither of us to get fed up with each other. Mm -hmm. And then I get on a plane and go off again, and that's fine. And I prefer that. Last question, probably the biggest thing we talked about in this whole hour and a half. Is it true that you played oh boy. the homeless bird lady in Home, <laughs> in Home Alone 2. No! Was that you, Peter? It is not true. No. Prove it. Prove it. It's not prove it. No, just like you said to... Prove it. You gotta prove it. Prove Why it. don't you ask the actress who plays the bird lady, Brenda Fricker? She doesn't Fricker. exist. It's a woman! What's her name? Brenda Fricker. Fricker Never is heard it? of it. it sounds She's like you an made actress. It up. You must have got that before. It sounds like you made it up. I got it before. I had to do my Christmas card based on this two years ago because I got so many people going on about it. It is not me. Really? And every time that bloody movie airs, which is every Christmas, I get bombarded <laughs> on Twitter with, it's him, it's him. It's not me. Uh, we don't believe I, I don't believe you. I have, though, been in nine other movies playing myself, Ten. which have grossed over $2 billion. So you're actually, you won't realize it, but I'm one of the biggest movie stars you've ever had. In <laughs> Pierce Morgan, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate you for joining us this morning. Guys, great to see you. Thank you so much. And it's The Breakfast Club. Good morning. Wake that ass up. In the morning. The Breakfast Club. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I 
love the dance challenges. <laughs> I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This is your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the oh, barrel up, so to, up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guests like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.